It is good to be here at First Presbyterian Church San Anselmo on this Pride Sunday, on the Sunday after the Supreme Court's decision holding that same-gender couples have the fundamental constitutional right to marry just like everyone else. It is good to be here in this congregation where you have worked so hard for the full inclusion of gay, bisexual, lesbian, transgender people in our families, in the full life of the church and in the world, where you have done so much so that we, so that I, might freely serve in the church where you have loved us and our families and affirmed our marriages and our ministries. It is good beyond words to stand here with you in worship this morning. Thank you. And it is good to be here with you, dear friends, in this incredibly painful week. As our nation continues to reel from the terrorist attack at Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, as we continue to mourn the deaths of nine remarkable, loving, faithful people, and as we are left with the task of at long last doing something about the raw and gaping wound of racism that has plagued this nation since its founding. When we face times like these and challenges like these, it is good to be together. This morning as we gather, the lectionary offers us this strange text from 2 Samuel. In the midst of all-out war, between King Saul and David, in the midst of chapter and chap chapter after chapter of violence, we find what is essentially a love poem. Jonathan has died, and David wails in lament, O oh, Jonathan, you are beloved to me. All this violence, all this love, what are we to do with that? How are we to hold all that? In our time together this morning, I suggest we do this. Let's hold all that together. Let's stand honestly in the tension and let's look for a word. Let's look for a word wherever we can in the words of Scripture, in the words of the poets, in the words of tender prophetic eulogies offered this week and in the words of a Supreme Court decision. And let's start by looking at the photo on the cover of your bulletin. Take a second and pull it out. This rather ordinary-looking sculpture inspired the poet Philip Larkin to write the, tomb, the, the poem, An Arundel Tomb. The story goes that Larkin was walking through Chichester Cathedral and he came upon this tomb, a carving of some folks who died centuries ago, the man all done up in armor, what you'd expect to see from that time. But then Larkin notices something. He sees that the man has pulled his hand out from his gauntlet, from his armor glove, and his hand is holding her hand. Centuries have passed, their faces are blurred, their names on the tomb obscured, but here they are, hand in hand. Larkin calls it a sculptor's sweet commissioned grace. Year after year, surviving the long flow of history, this is what remains of them, what speaks to Larkin and to us. And so Larkin writes this of them. 
Now, helpless in the hollow of an unarmorial age, a trough of smoke and slow suspended skeins above the scrap of history, only an attitude remains. Time has transfigured them into untruth. The stone fidelity they hardly meant has come to be their final blazon. To prove our almost instinct, almost true, what will survive of us is love. That's what Larkin sees. After all the history and all the centuries and all the life, here they are. Hand in hand, they prove our almost instinct, almost true, what will survive of us is love. And then we come to this love poem in this morning's scripture in the strangest of places in the middle of a war story. This summer you all are walking through the Old Testament stories of David's kingship, stories of political power and violence. A couple weeks ago you looked at the text where the people demanded a king. God says, you don't need a king, you have me. But they insist they want to be powerful and they want to be protected by that power. Then last week, David slays Goliath, and then this week, King Saul is hunting David down, and it results in all-out war. And in the midst of all that, you have the story of David and Jonathan and their love for each other. Jonathan is the king's son, the king who will try to kill the upstart David. Jonathan meets David and sees something in David and pledges himself to David. Scripture says that the soul of David was knit together with the soul of Jonathan. Actually, in the Hebrew, it's more like the whole self of David was knit together with the whole self of Jonathan. And Scripture says that Jonathan loves David as his own self, his own being, and they live that out. Jonathan offers his armor to David and his sword and his bow and his sword belt, giving up any claim to power opening himself up in vulnerability. When King Saul tries to kill David, Jonathan lives up to his commitment to David and helps David escape. And when David has to flee for his life, they weep together. And they promise this as they part. May we show God's own love to each other. But King Saul doesn't love David. Because David is a political threat, and so King Saul hunts him down. Saul does everything in his power to find David and kill David, and it culminates in war, King Saul against David. And Saul is killed in battle, and Jonathan is killed. And the word comes to David, still on the battlefield, and he lets out this wail and this lament. Oh, how the mighty have fallen, beloved and lovely. Jonathan lies slain upon the heights. Oh, Jonathan, greatly beloved, you were to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. You can't read this story without feeling the heartbeat and pulse of love. It's there again and again. David's whole self is knit together with Jonathan's, Jonathan's whole self. Jonathan loves David as his whole self. They pledge to each other, may we show God's love to each other. David cries out, Jonathan, you were beloved to me in the midst of war. After all the violence and all the strife, David laments of Jonathan and proves our almost instinct almost true. 
what will survive of us is love. And that would be one thing if this was just the story of David and Jonathan. But I think that we hear this heartbeat, this pulse, across the whole of Scripture. From the beginning to end, it is what drives the story. Love is what drives the story. At the heart of the Hebrew Scriptures, there is God's love for us and God's command to love Hear, O Israel, your God is one. You shall love your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. That same command pulses at the heart of the New Testament. God comes to us in Jesus Christ. The Word becomes flesh. The heartbeat of God pulses in the fullness of humanity. And folks ask Jesus, what is the greatest command? And Jesus says, love. Love God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Love. The words that Scripture uses for love are rich and robust. In the Hebrew Scriptures, there is a hava, the love that binds us to one another in relationship, beloved to beloved, parent to child, bosom friend to bosom friend. Maybe even more importantly, there is chesed, God's faithful covenant love for us, what my friend Eugenia Gamble calls God's unshake-offable love for us, God's sure promise to accompany us and to love us no matter what, wherever we go, and our promise to accompany each other. And in the New Testament, there is agape, the love that binds us to God and to each other in community, in self-giving mutuality of relationship. This love that pulses throughout Scripture isn't a mere feeling or fancy. It is God's gift and God's command. It is a way of life, a promise, a commitment to seek the well-being, the health, the wholeness of others. It is a love that relinquishes privilege and power over others and that embraces power with and power for power shared with freedom and dignity among all God's children. It is a love that calls us to action and justice in the way of Jesus Christ, to care for the most vulnerable among us, to welcome the stranger, to preach good news to the poor, to, bring up, to bind up the brokenhearted, to work, to work for the freedom of the captive and the oppressed. Some of you know my friend Lisa Largis an amazing preacher, pastor, and leader who sought so faithfully to serve the church as an out lesbian. One of the times that Lisa was going before Presbytery to be questioned for ordination, she and I got together over coffee in Noe Valley to prepare. I had read her statement of faith, and at her invitation, I questioned her pretty hard, like a lawyer might do on cross-examination. We tried to imagine what tough questions she might encounter in Presbytery. And when we were done with the practice session, I said to my friend, Lisa, I have one more question just for me. I've read what you've written, and we've talked for over an hour, and not once, not once have you, a good, progressive Christian, used the word justice. And Lisa leaned in, and she said, Scott, there's nothing I can say with the word justice that I can't say with the word love. Throughout the whole of Scripture, 
God shows us and calls us to that kind of justice love. From creation to redemption, through exodus and exile and empire and crucifixion and resurrection and Pentecost, God calls us to give ourselves to the work of love, to, with our whole selves and our whole lives, prove our almost instinct, almost true, what will survive of us is love. Now, sometimes the world of the Bible can feel distant and long ago to me. But this week, it's not that much of a stretch for me to stand in the violence and lament of the biblical world and to be painfully aware of the violence and lament in our own. This week, we continue to grieve and to deplore the killing of nine beautiful and faithful people as they prayed in church. They were killed in a terrorist attack that once again lays bare America's continuing racism. This week we have stood in the midst of our violent world and as the memorial and homegoing services have begun, we have experienced the poetry of profound love and lament. On Wednesday at Ethel Lance's memorial service, her grandson Brandon Risher spoke of all the ways that his grandmother had loved her family and her community and he said, she was a victim of hate. She can be a symbol of love, just as she was in life. Hate is powerful, but love is even more powerful. Folks described how Cynthia Graham Hurd had served as librarian in a distressed community where she'd become not only librarian, but counselor and friend to the neighborhood youth. Her brother said that she had died as she had lived in the company of God trying to help people out. And then on Friday, our President Barack Obama spoke of Reverend Clemente Pickney saying, he embodied the idea that our Christian faith demands deeds, not just words. That the sweet hour of prayer actually lasts the whole week long. That to put our faith in action is more than just individual salvation, it's about collective salvation. That to feed the hungry, clothe the naked and house the homeless is not just a call for isolated charity, but the imperative of a just society. President Obama reminded us that God's love and amazing grace call us to action, and particularly here, to heal and to end America's racism, to look honestly at the ways that past injustices continue to shape the present to examine ourselves, to see the ways that racial bias manifests in our own lives, and to name that and to change that. To work hard for systems of justice and law enforcement that are no longer infected by racial bias. To ask tough questions about how we let so many children in this nation live in poverty. To do something about what the president calls the unique mayhem that gun violence inflicts upon this nation. Out of this national trauma and out of the racism that has persisted in this nation since its inception and out of this unspeakable violence, President Obama and the families of those who perished just over a week ago are calling us to give ourselves to the work of love. In their words and in their lives, we get a glimpse, a glimpse to prove our almost instinct, almost true, what will survive of us is love. And then on Friday, even as we grieved and mourned these lives, the Supreme Court issued its opinion 
declaring marriage a fundamental right for all and affirming the full humanity and dignity of all people and all families. And I think of the courageous folks who brought their cases to the court. Timothy Love and Lawrence Isunza wanted to get married, but they were denied a marriage license because they were gay. Valerie Tanko and Sophie Jesty got married in New York, but then they moved to Tennessee to teach at the university. Tennessee refused to recognize their marriage, refused to afford them parental rights, and denied them family health insurance. Brittany Henry and Brittany Rogers had a baby and both wanted to be listed on the birth certificate, but the state would only list the birth mother, not both mothers. April DeBoer and Jane Rouse had each adopted a child when they were single, but now, married in another state, Michigan refused to let them adopt each other's child so they could legally be one family. And maybe best known to us, James Obergefell and John Arthur were married in New York. And when John died in Ohio, James Obergefell wanted to be listed on John's death certificate as husband. These couples came to the court and said that they had a right to be just as married as everyone else. And the United States Supreme Court agreed. And this is what the court said. In forming a marital union, two people become something greater than they once were. As some of the petitioners in these cases demonstrate, marriage embodies a love that may endure even past death. It would misunderstand these men and women to say they disrespect the idea of marriage. Their plea is that they do respect it. Respect it so deeply that they seek to find its fulfillment for themselves. Their hope is not to be condemned to live in loneliness, excluded from one of civilization's oldest institutions. They ask for equal dignity in the eyes of the law. The Constitution grants them that right. It is so ordered. Now we could talk about the legal significance of this, and you know I would love to do that. <laughs> we could talk of the Equal Protection Clause and the Due Process Clause, we could even talk about Justice Scalia's dissent. <laughs> okay, maybe. But here's what I think matters most. In the days to come, Timothy Love and Lawrence Asunza and so many like them in all 50 United States will walk into a county courthouse and they will get a marriage license. Just like everyone else. And their families will gather around them, maybe even in a church, and they will be married. In Tennessee, Dr. Valerie Tanko and Dr. Sophie Jesty will be recognized as one family with full parental rights for both their children. In Ohio, Brittany Henry and Brittany Rogers will both be listed on their daughter's birth certificate as mothers. For April DeBoer and Jane Rouse, the state of Michigan will legally recognize what is already true, that they are both parents of both their children. And somewhere in a courthouse in Ohio, a county clerk will pull will pull John Arthur's death certificate and quietly type these words. James Obergefell 
husband. In these families, in our families, in these quiet moments of courage and freedom and dignity and love, we get a glimpse. We get a glimpse to prove our almost instinct, almost true. What will survive of us is love. On this Pride Sunday, we celebrate this moment of justice, equality, and freedom. And at the very same time, we mourn no less the lives that have been lost in Charleston. We hold all this, and we say together what we know to be true. We have much work yet to do. And so tomorrow morning, we will rise once again, and we will give ourselves to the work of love that God commands in the world. We will love each other, and we will love our families, and we will raise our children. We will mourn and miss and grieve those whom we have loved and lost, and we will work together for the dignity and safety and freedom of all children and of all families. Tomorrow morning, we will rise once again, and we will give ourselves to the work of love that God commands in the world. We will to the work of ending racism in this country, naming our own racism, relinquishing our own power over and privilege, working together to dismantle the systems in our nation that harm and hurt. Tomorrow morning, we will rise once again and we will give ourselves to the work of love that God commands in the world. We will proclaim good news for the poor, working for a world in which everyone has enough. We will comfort those who mourn. We will bind up the brokenhearted. We will welcome and shelter the stranger. We will proclaim release to the captive and work for the freedom of all who are oppressed. We will give ourselves to the work of love that God commands in the world. And we will, with God's help in our own embodied lives, prove once and for all and forever our almost instinct absolutely true. What will survive of us is love.